0: This means On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haid, and today's program will introduce you or bring to you conversations with two of the cookbook makers, circles, top stars, Deborah Madison, a little turn uh, on this, since an onion in my pocket, great name, um, is in fact a memoir explaining her longtime love affair uh, with vegetables. And then we're going to turn to Joshua David Stein, who we've interviewed a number of times about various cookbooks he's written. I think it's 17 cookbooks he's written, or 15. But he brings us a really smart turn on cooking for your kids, asking top chefs about what they cook for their kids. So it was really fun.
1: Yeah, I have a pencil and paper handy for that one. Huh? Yep.
0: Yeah. So start off with Deborah Madison. Deborah Madison, um, your latest book, one of many, "An Onion in My Pocket." Um, I, I've read it with great glee because people have always said to me, um, "You should write your your memoir,"
2: <laughs>
0: and, and I never have. But you wrote it for me.
2: <laughs> oh, I did. <laughs>
0: I mean, some of the, the the things that you talk about takes me back a ways, I must say. Um, except for, I never was a a, a Buddhist student. Uh huh. So, but otherwise, um, a, a, a lot of this the familiarity pops up with. I mean, looking back at what was available in the '60s. Mm -hmm. it's rather remarkable isn't it it's it's amazing
2: writing this book bangs of memory well you you, i I didn't hear your question quite but it is remarkable i mean there were no vegetables really and um It's just so different now, and although I don't know now that we're entering this horrible drought that we're in the middle of here. Oh, it's terrible! In in New Mexico, I don't know what's going to happen to our vegetables. But we certainly have like Seattle too. We're not as we're not that hot right now, but we will. We have been, and we will get hot again. Yeah, I know. Oh, if they don't do something. Let's pray for those hatch chilies,
1: huh?
2: Yeah, but that's down south. (laughs) That's not where I am. (laughs) I'm up north. New Mexico,
0: okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I I guess we can look back and start from that perspective. I'd love to know how you... my, My life has not been as... Uh, how would you say? Ordered as yours. The one thing in your life leads to the next, leads to the next, and so forth. It seems to have a great rationale behind it. And, and mine doesn't. How did you get it ordered like that? Is that the way it was or is?
2: I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't know. I mean, you know, when you sit down to write a book, particularly a memoir, you 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 do remember all kinds of things. And I'm not. Sh- I don't identify with order at all in my life. It seems very um, chaotic, actually. If anything, but you know, it's interesting to hear you say that.
0: Uh-huh. It's true. I mean, I can't. Just it doesn't go linearly at all um, mm,
2: mm-hmm, with cause
0: true. and effect, where yours seems to be. And don't you think that one thing led to another? I mean, there's always something that moves on to the next logical stage of development.
2: Yes, that's true. There is. But partly, you know, I mean, I wrote this because it was so hard doing greens. It was so, so challenging, so difficult to do this restaurant that was vegetarian in 1979. And um, a lot of the food then was very rich. I mean, it wasn't just greens. It was everybody. We were so excited about food, all chefs were. I remember. (laughs) Yeah, you do. (laughs) And it was it was quite a revelation to be cooking at that time. I must say.
0: Uh, Jacques Papin said that when he first came to uh, the States, you couldn't even buy button mushrooms. <laughs>
2: Well, I found that true, too. You know, a lot of times um, when I would – I mean, I i lived in San Francisco, and that's where I did greens, and so I always had access to lots of wonderful produce from our farm and and other farms. But when I went on book tour for the first time, I was shocked that this didn't exist everywhere in the country. It really mm-hmm. didn't, and now it does. I mean, even at Trader Joe's, you can buy – arugula and golden beets and all these foods that, you know, were really being introduced at the time we started greens. Right. But,
0: you know, I have to mention, by the way, that um, reading about Patrick, he's he's like a, a carbon copy of my husband. <laughs>
2: oh, really? <laughs> the
0: same kind of eating, he's eat slow. And uh-huh. when he's full, he stops. <laughs> <You
2: know? laughs> yes, and they're both thin because I've seen pictures. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs>
0: they're both thin.
2: I know, and, pa- and Patrick will say, even today, even last night, he said, I'm so hungry, I just want to enjoy this food. And I said, well, did you have lunch? No, he didn't have lunch. <laughs> of course not.
0: Who is but this one picking on? My husband.
2: <laughs>
0: oh, okay. Patrick, he's... He, he eats slowly. He um, knows when he's full and stops. Um, he doesn't think about food all the time. <laughs>
2: no, he's an artist, so he thinks about art all the time.
0: <laughs> no, I thought maybe you were talking
2: about Patrick O'Keefe.
0: No, 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 no. no. Not him. Another Patrick. Um, Deborah, how many books have you written?
2: I've written, I think, 15, including An Onion in My Pocket.
0: Wow, I mean, aren't you amazed at that amount of output you know really
2: I guess I am um it, you know it it although it seems also dated now and over for me um I think that that people are just discovering vegetables, and that's wonderful that they are um and I'm probably. The opposite, discovering meat, you know, because I cook for Patrick and he, he grew up very differently than I did. He had steak many times a week and so forth. So, you know, if he wants steak, I'll, I'm happy to cook it for him. I don't find it so interesting myself.
0: Well, you know, I, I, I agree with you. And chewing the same taste over and over and over again is not really my idea of something wonderful. No, it's not. <laughs> But no, what was I going to Oh yeah, I was going to say that the thing that I find the most relatable to you is your flexibility. I mean, I I have met um, some. Well, I even have relatives who are vegan who are so militant that Mm -hmm. they're impossible to socialize with.
2: Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I and I, I really feel it's important that we all sit down to the table together and if i have a vegan coming for dinner and they've let me know ahead of time that and they're sorry and blah 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 i will jump through hoops for them but normally i won't normally it's 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 I, i believe in manners you know and saying oh thank you for having us for dinner we'll eat whatever is here and um on the other hand i don't like to make people uncomfortable and I can be flexible that way, but basically I would love it if people who are vegan or keto or whatever they are would just set it aside for a moment. The problem with these diets, I think, is that they, they promise so much and, um, and they never really work, I don't think. I mean, maybe they do for a while. I've certainly tried various things in my life, but now I don't anymore. <laughs>
0: I've never been on a diet.
2: <laughs> no, I haven't either. Not not a real diet, but I mean, change, changing what you eat and you know, eliminating certain foods, uh, including other foods that you wouldn't normally include, you know, that kind of thing. I've I have done before, but not now. No, I'm I'm I've always been actually pretty open. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were you you were. Um, You came to this through. Tell us
0: a little bit about your experience in in the Buddhist retreat.
2: In retreat, in the Buddhist
0: well, in the what do you call it? In the monastery or whatever. In the monastery.
2: Yeah. it was great i loved every single minute of it and it was very very hard because it was so cold in the winter and so hot in the summer it's this narrow little valley you know in the los padres forest that in in um california that either was freezing cold or very very hot and um and i cooked there and i did other things too um I, I write about it quite a bit in the book, uh and I think probably I will write a book that's based on part of what I learned there that seventy two labors brought us this food. we should know how it comes to us, which was the yeah. opening chant to our meal and um, I really have always been very, very interested in that question
0: well, of course, people have suddenly begun thinking of it again, mm-hmm. but um. But there was such denial involved with with your life there now. Denial you, in what way? You couldn't do this, or nobody was. Everybody was questioning if you ate something else that you weren't supposed to eat and that sort of thing? Oh, I
2: don't know. I think everybody was ravenous all the time and very interested in food. Um, And it changed over the years. I mean, there was a time when there was no sugar, but we liked sugar, and we liked coffee, and we liked those things together. Um, Mm -hmm. So what can I say about that? You know, things change.
0: My my best friend... um, Was at Siddha Yoga, I forget what particular branch this was, in upstate New York. And um, she was my best friend, and she wanted me to share her life. And so she wanted me to come on one of those, um, well, uh, whatever you call it, I call them retreats because I was raised Catholic. I don't know.
2: Oh, (laughs) okay.
0: But but at any rate, um, when we got there, she got very excited because we really lucked out we were going to have a 24 hour t- chance
2: <laughs> ay 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 was got to get out of here
1: it was called an it was called an ashram wasn't it
2: ashram it right work? yeah that's where people go it's kind of like the monastery i anyway, think for
1: yogis wh- 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 what
0: yeah, happened well, let me
1: it, let me share with you what happened this was the second morning i think of a visit to the ashram and she said, I have to come home. And I said, you can't. You booked yourself in there. You, you got yourself into this mess.
2: <laughs> I, so you I, had I, to I, stay, right?
1: I had no sympathy to offer whatsoever.
2: <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry
1: about that, yeah.
0: how was, was being mother. Well, um, so you learned very important things. Um, your family was complicated, your parents, right? <laughs> yes.
2: Yes, my parents, I mean, they were born practically 24 hours apart and they were so different about food it was kind of hard growing up in a way um, i felt very bifurcated and torn between uh a feeling of abundance which came from my dad and a feeling of scarcity which came from my mom so i never knew if i could really afford good olive oil or not now now that's different now of course i can and i do but um but yeah it was it was a little bit <laughs> it was a little dicey to say the least
0: yeah well my mother was another one of those that grew up during the depression,
2: and mm-hmm. it stuck
0: with her in mm-hmm. every little way I mean things like collecting bits of soap and putting it in with water in a jar to use to wash her stockings and things
2: <laughs> yeah yeah no the that did leave a big impression on people and but you know, my mother was fine she never her father never always kept the job and uh, he worked for lord and taylor i believe and um and same with my dad they never stood in soup lines or anything but my mother took it very very differently than my father and -hmm. she was a new englander and i think that had something to do with it and maybe an immigrant although they had been there for three generations you know i think that that leaves an impression too right but you, you were open
0: to a lot of different experiences, as I read in in your memoir.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: importantly, um, you did have some amazing experiences with interesting—not only interesting, but very. Um, uh, well, what's the term? People in your life, um, that yeah. not only yeah exposed you to so many things.
2: Yes, Talk I did. A I was very. Bit.
0: I mean, Alice is one do you want to talk to listeners about that well yes i did
2: work at shape and nice um back in the day when you could just do that you know it wasn't such a big deal as it is now and alice was actually there along with um other people jeremiah tower mark miller oh, yes. He's wonderful, and, yes. yeah and you know and like that and i just came to dinner she invited me to dinner and um so three of us came she said bring your friends too so three of us went and we had um a most amazing meal and i after that meal i said i have to work here i don't care what it takes i've got to work here so um when we went back to the city that night I noticed that the abbot's light was on, and so I went up and I said, I have to work at and I'm sorry. I, I mean, because at the Zen Center, you never said what you wanted to do. You were given an assignment for what to do, what would help you to grow or whatever. And he said, fine. <laughs> but I didn't know about greens at that point, so um, I'm, I'm sure he had that thought in mind that, oh, yeah, she wants to do that. Well, she she's interested in food, and she's done a lot of cooking, and so yeah, why not? Well, so, I did. You you did.
0: You earned a, a lot of information, and um, I, I guess you had the basis of creativity in there. But uh, the, you really you, you're essentially self-taught, right? Yes, I am. I never hmm. went to cooking school. So how did you ever? I mean, you, you became really um, sophisticated, and for a while you never even um, were exposed to travel. But then later you got to travel.
2: Yes, I did, and and once I did, it changed everything. But I think I don't know how sophisticated I was. I think my recipes were very fundamental and very simple in a way. Um, you know, and they always have been. In fact, I I like cooking them. Um, and I've cooked from my books a lot during this pandemic year. But um I don't know. I I think people have gone on to much more gorgeous foods and so forth than when I started. And I I didn't do greens for very long, really, only three or four years, but it was long enough, you know, to make it happen, mm-hmm. to get it to happen. I'm actually, um, right now, I'm very intrigued with The Chef's Garden Cookbook by Farmer Lee Jones. Yeah, and I keep asking them because
0: I, I subscribe to them, them from time to time.
1: Mm-hmm. And I know,
0: I, I know uh, Lee really well. And, hmm. But nobody's sending me a copy of that book, you know, to review. I'm surprised.
2: Huh. I'm surprised. Yeah, well, I, I actually, uh, he sent me a box of goodies from his farm, and I must say I was so impressed and so amazed to,
0: to actually
2: taste them. I mean, I feel like I've tasted quite a few foods, but these these were very, very different. And there's so much information in this book, and his recipes are so beautiful, and they're doable, a lot of them, I think. hmm
0: well, I'm going to get on them again and, and see. But, Do that. Um, it's really superior produce. Um, and he did a, a quick turnaround when pandemic hit and all the restaurants closed. Yeah. But I guess he's now, of course, they opening up is back to um, uh, prioritizing the, the uh, professional chef's.
2: Well, I hope he is. I hope he didn't lose his business. I worried about it, you know, um, worried about him during the pandemic because, you know, it's hard to farm and then you have climate change and then you have nobody buying or using the food and that's got to be hard and you're writing a book. You know, but, um, I love what he's done, and I think that it's more emblematic of what people are doing now, although I can't imagine it quite like that because people are busy, you know they've got homes and kids and so forth, and so on but but, even so, you know, I'm looking at a picture right now of wood roasted Hubbard squash with Dashi. What could be simpler than that? not very fabulous. it's very, very simple, really. And I was looking at that picture because I did decide to plant squash this year, winter squash, which I don't usually do, but it's been so hot, and they are sprawling around. And I'm, so I'm looking at the labels to see what I have <laughs> out there.
0: <laughs> yeah, and this, the garden where we are—it's just rained all the time, and so mm. it's just a mess. Where are drought, you, drought In the west southwestern Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh. Oh, you
2: are. Yeah. yeah. And we have no rain at all. I mean, it's supposed right. to be right now it's supposed to be our rainy season, but mm, maybe every 5 nights or so we get a little bit of rain, a tiny little bit of rain. <laughs> and you know what? The plants respond so much to rainwater. I can't believe it. You know, I mean, I water uh, very cautiously and carefully um from water I collect from our, you know, our cooking and so forth mm-hmm. and um, but when the minute it rains, all kinds of things come up. It's amazing. The amaranth is, like, up and beautiful, and it's ready to grow. I don't know. I hope it rains some more so it will continue to grow. Oh, uh, yeah.
0: um, the, so, the, what about some other people that influenced you?
2: Um, other people, people some who have wild influence.
0: experiences, like the, the woman in upstate New York. <laughs> Tell us about her. Who who is that? The one in that, that New York that you you helped out with her. She called you her slave.
2: Oh, Nancy Wilson Ross. In yes. In yes, in Old Westbury. Um, Oh Nancy was wonderful. I loved that year or the couple of years I got to spend with her, um which was mostly cooking and being her little slave in the kitchen and and then up at the in the Adirondacks where we you know where we cooked and ate and worked in the garden and wrote books and things like that and and she Nancy, how did you get was, there I, did, I
0: didn't quite understand how that happened
2: well i got there because um she, her husband had died recently stanley young and um and the abbot of Zen Center knew Nancy and knew she needed help, and so he would periodically send people to go and live with her. And then it was my turn, so I went, and that's all. That's how I got there.
0: I see. And, but, and then she took you to Europe.
2: She took me to Europe. I went to Europe with her, and we had a wonderful experience, which I wrote about in the book. That yep. we, where we had a meal in Scotland that changed my perspective forever on cooking. It really became my north star.
0: And why was that? Explain that one.
2: That was because every, we. First of all, we were. We were famished and it was so, so cold outside. Now, tell
0: me. I've never been <laughs> yeah, you wetter know. Or colder in my whole life than when I was in Scotland.
2: <laughs> and this this was um in November actually it was just before the election um in the United States and Jimmy Carter was elected then so it was quite some time ago but um we were starving and cold and we needed we needed some food and this woman in an inn was starting to cook dinner and she agreed to feed us and she ushered us into the dining room and we sat and we looked outside and we at the garden and we could see Brussels sprouts and potatoes and leeks, and then beyond that was a little loch, a lake, and there were fish in the lake. And and pretty soon she brought us our lunch, and it was exactly what we'd been looking at in the garden (laughs) and the lake. And it was so amazing, and it was so delicious, and she was so kind. And together, those things really, really made a difference to me.
0: Now... You you write a lot about Tassahara. Um I had that cookbook, the bread cookbook, the first one. hmm And um and I'm interested in that and also in the state of health food stores. You even talk about the difference in smell.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. And it's true, I, I remember that. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you did. Thank you. Um I knew nothing really about the bread book. Um I mean it came out and I use it now and then, but not very often. Um although I am very now interested in grains and sourdough bread, but um I didn't write that book. Edward S.B. Brown wrote it. But in terms of the health food stores, I mean I used to go to a health food store and um on Sutter Street in San Francisco when I felt I needed a little revival and you know of of my spirit and my health and everything smelled like silage and it was kind of wonderful actually and and the women who worked there were dressed like nurses and so forth and Yeah I thought that was very
0: funny. That's something I don't remember. The nurses.
2: Huh. Huh. And then it moved on from there, you know, to more the smell of patchouli oil. And I remember those health food stores very well because there was one quite close to Zen Center that I used to go to. And, um, that's when, that was before there was meat in stores. Everything was, was vegetarian in that way. But, um, you know, then when Whole Foods and alfalfa's and places like that opened up, and there were these huge meat counters that were so long and so big, people were really offended. But um, they persisted, and that's what you have now. I, I think things have changed so much since we were young. Um, you know, when I grew up, we didn't have a lot of meat, but what we had was, was everything was GMO-free. We didn't think twice about it. Now right. Nowadays, you have to be very selective if you care at all about your health and, and the health of the animals you're eating.
0: Right. Um, you know, I was going to ask you some other things, but I might as well jump in where I was really aiming, which is like, uh, you look at the scene today, Now you, you've sat and contemplated all of this past history, but jump ahead to where we are now and where do you think we're going to be going?
2: I have no idea where we're going, and I'm very worried about it. In fact, I was, was supposed to be on two Zoom broadcasts today talking about the future of food um, oh, yeah. at this time, and and it's fine that I'm not. I'd, I'm happy to be talking with you too, um, but this was what we were going to talk about, and I don't know. Um, I mean, I was on the board of the Southwest Grass-Fed Livestock Alliance for many years. Um, partly because in New Mexico, which is such a dry, dry state, people have to really raise beef differently if they're going to do grass-fed, grass-finished beef and put water back on the land. And they've done that. And the water is for wildlife as well as for anybody else, too. So um, that's just, you know, I'm sorry, somebody just came in. Um, so that's just fine. Uh, what's going to happen with vegetables and produce? I don't know what's going to happen. I think we're just going to have to wait and see.
0: Well, I, I don't know where we're headed. I mean, this, the whole climate change thing is just so terrifying I, in, in every regard. I can't believe some of the temperatures achieved in Seattle, for example. Oh,
2: I know. In the northwest, yeah. is, is utterly shocking of course, they,
0: I read that they didn't have any um, – the grapes were all fine. Um, but I know they had storms in, in uh, the the northern wine regions of Italy that wiped out entire crops. Aye,
2: aye, i i i yeah, aye, aye. yeah.
0: And right. then we interviewed um, somebody from the – was it the grape, Grapefruit Council or something, the Citrus Council in Texas – and he pointed out that um, this, the winter storm, um, not only did it kill the, uh, the current crop, but well, there were two crops. were The one that was there was wiped out and destroyed, and then the one just coming in was also killed. Hmm. So there are two seasons behind in, in grapefruit production.
2: Hmm. Interesting. I didn't know know, that.
0: I mean, that's going to bits and pieces here and there and the other where, but they're all going to add up to this 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 morass of of everything not being what it was supposed to be, and we're not prepared for that yet.
2: No, we're not. And I really fear we're going to go back to one kind of lettuce and two kinds of apples, and you know, like it was in the '50s and the '60s, and that would be. I don't know. I hope not. I hope that's not going to happen. There's
0: so many visionaries involved with food now. I thought that they might not let that happen.
2: Well, I don't know that they can that they can do much to prevent it, actually. But everything is very, very fragile. And I mean, I just went down to the Gila Wilderness in southern New Mexico, and mm-hmm. I was so impressed with the diversity of plants that when I came home, I thought oh, why am I plant- growing anything in my garden? Why don't I eat wild food? Well, I'd starve, <laughs>
0: for for one, <laughs> I
2: think, because there isn't a lot. But I did just harvest black currants um, off of my currant bushes because the birds plant them. They're made yeah. of ribes. And, and the birds plant them, and everything is full of fruit this year. So I picked it's all the black cool. currants. Yeah. But and it's my small.
0: Asian pear tree is full of fruit too, but it's not really that good. But
2: yeah, and everything is small too. I mean, they, the I Africans. was going to say they're
0: really they're like marble sized. My Asian pears, yeah. really.
2: Well, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. But it's I been raining don't.
0: every day, so
2: hmm. that's not good either. If it's no. raining every day. On the other hand, I mean, we usually have a monsoon this type of year, this time of year. Pardon me, and. um and it rains every day starting around 11 for a couple hours or so. And then it stops and it mm-hmm. dries out. But because we've had no rain, the earth is so thirsty. It rains when it does rain. It just absorbs right in and it as can be the next hour. Mm-hmm. So Not good. No, it's not good to have no rain. It's not good to have too much rain.
0: Well, you see what's happening in Germany. I mean, it's just going to accelerate all... Unless somebody does something, and I'm with you, I'm not so sure that there's all that much that people can do.
2: I don't know. I'm not sure either. I mean, we have to we have to do something about the climate change, and I mean, I've I've known about this for the last 30 or 40 years, and I now finally people are getting interested because why? Because they have to move, or because something like that is taking place.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but,
2: and and the prices in real estate have gotten absurd
0: oh please you know. it's another one <laughs> is that true
2: true or you yes, are too it's terrible hmm. i don't
0: know how people live but well tell me this what what do you think is going to for you is going to be next are you still doing cooking classes
2: I do. I I mean, I only do them when people want to, when they show up, when they come, when they call, but I like to do just for two people or so, so that people can really tell me what they want to know about, what they want to learn, and that's been very, very good.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that I found enigmatic in your book is that with this life of eating and all this vast experiences, you you couldn't think of any really knock your socks off meal that you recalled in detail
2: well i you know I, I, there are lots of knock knock your socks off meals you know but th- they're intended to like be things. that way you know like um you you know um i mean i did have that first meal at shape which was just right. so dynamic and so forth but in the end And when I talk about meals, like the lunch that Ernie made for me and others like that, um, they're they're not knock your socks off in that usual sense, but they were interesting to me. They were vital to me. And I've recalled them after many, 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 many years and sometimes decades. So um, that's what really makes a difference to me.
0: Right. Impacting you,
2: basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have eaten lots of three-star meals where they're fantastic, and you think, "Oh my God, how do they do that?" Or how do they know that I want this kind of wine right now? And but they do. And I mean, that actually really happened to me, and um, I've eaten it. At, at any number of three star restaurants, but I didn't want to talk about restaurants that were meant to shock and awe, which I think a lot of those are. Um, but more about meals that sometimes had meat, sometimes didn't, but which I remember, um, be, you know, because they were important to me.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's the difference. I mean, I I didn't really mean knock your socks off. Yeah. I meant really impactful, I guess, is what I was thinking.
2: Yeah. And and the last chapter is filled with descriptions of meals like that, too. Um, Because I, and some of them are about eating meat, some of them are not. Some of them have foods I never, ever, ever would have bought in my life, like (laughs) Ernie's Ernie's steak and his margarine and zucchini that he cooked in a whole cube of margarine forever and ever. But, But you know what? It was good, and it taught me that if you really cook squash, summer squash it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be rich and i am just going to get up and let in a dog who is scratching at the window here <laughs> and getting in our conversation come on in for you there he's a big beast okay he's in
0: okay so where where do you stay now i mean uh, so you look back um, you've sorted through memorable and impactful and, and not, and you came up with some ideas. You have even a whole chapter on manners, which we've talked briefly about. So I mean, what, what interests you going forward now from here?
2: I think what interests me is actually not so much a book, but... Um, as I'm very involved with a, with a Rio Grande grain project here, growing grains, trying to get people to to be interested in grains, to make them accessible, to sell them at a farmer's market. So I might just be back at the farmer's market again with, with little bags of grain. I don't know. Um, but, I mean, I've taken a – gone to grain school in Colorado and that state is really doing a lot with grains we could too this used to be a a grain bread basket for Pete's sakes northern New Mexico was with Sonoran wheat and other kinds of wheat so probably that's what I'm going to be spending my time with and um, the garden I've cut way 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 back on because of the drought and yeah And I will write, I do want to write this book um, on 72 labors because there's so much about food that I'm interested in, how it comes to us, you know, that endive is a vegetable in two parts. And I say that and most people look, what? What are you talking about? And I try to explain (laughs) to them how it's growing and so forth.
0: Well, I I certainly really... um, it made me think It made me look back and made me think of where we were going reading your book. Um, this is, again, it's Deborah Madison, uh, and it's called An Onion in My Pocket, My Life with Vegetables. And it's very uh, on, on target trend-wise and time-wise, and, and I think it's very important to, uh, to consider this. Um, we, we just actually interviewed somebody about... The fake meat
2: <laughs> oh really interesting yeah, yeah. Now, we
0: have to decide the conversation <laughs> i find it appalling to tell you the truth but anyhow. it is appalling
2: it's appalling know. that we even have to think about it you know? I know. I
0: know it really is that and then the next thing is this the muscle grown in petri. Dishes.
2: <laughs> oh, I know. Ugh. Um, it doesn't interest me at all.
0: <laughs> so, Well, okay, Deborah, um, anything else you'd like to add before we conclude this?
2: No, but, Anne, I just want to thank you very, very much for this interview and for your other interviews as well, and Peter, too. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.
0: Well, it's it's um. I mean, the, the attraction, of course, is the many interesting people involved with food and how many aspects of it there are.
2: Mm-hmm. That's true. There are a lot of aspects of it. And okay, and, we'll have know. have fun with you.
0: Podcasting
3: services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net
0: Next up, of course, is Joshua David Stein and his book, Cooking for Your Kids, uh, which has a, a subtitle called um, Discover What the World's Greatest Chefs Serve Their Loved Ones at Home with this one-of-a-kind collection of recipes for families. And he cooks for his kids and so do a bunch of other chefs, read all about it. Joshua David Stein. Have you kept track of how many times we've interviewed you <laughs> for On the Menu? I
3: think this is my second or third?
0: Oh, more than that. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I I should have counted it before you called in for this one.
2: But this yeah. is a new Keep
0: book. Track. You are a prolific, yeah. prolific cookbook author. Um, this one's a little bit different from your usual cookbook. It's called Cooking for Your Kids with a big smiley face on it. I love the cover. (laughs) (laughs) It's subtitled At Home with the World's Greatest Chefs. So let me start with one. You have direct experience of cooking for your kids who are, how old now? My
3: older son, Achilles, is nine, and my younger son, Augie, is seven. Okay. And, and um, I,
0: yeah, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. I
3: try to cook for them. I try to cook for them, but not entirely successfully. So the book was kind of my attempt to answer for myself, how do I cook things that they might eat? So I got to ask, and that's a great part of my job. I got to ask the world's greatest chefs what they do.
0: Huh? How did you pick the world's greatest chefs?
3: A combination um, of of factors. Um, obviously, Michelin and Michelin stars were part of it. Uh, San Pellegrino's 50 Best, uh, the usual uh, metrics. But I also wanted to be very mindful that it was a diverse uh, group of chefs, both geographically and r- racially and and further to that, um, these were highly esteemed chefs that also had kids, so yes, it's evenly divided between men and women, and there are 12 couples, in other words, where both the oh. chef both the, mo- the mother and the father, or the mother and the mother, are chefs. So I tried very hard not to have it be the same stable of world's greatest chefs that everyone's
0: used to. Yeah, well, I, I find it very hard to believe that uh, Daniel and Maria Rose's kids eat calf's liver of vinegar with sauteed Brussels sprouts and bacon. <laughs> their age what well um, i mean were your parents
3: two of the most esteemed french chefs in the world
1: (laughs) so who cooked that who cooked
3: that i mean to them that's natural to them that's what their parents always made and uh i think you know i also had a similar reaction but i talked to daniel and he said yeah that's what we make them they only they (laughs) only think it's weird if we present it as weird to them yeah
0: it does, I mean, the attitude of the the, the, cook and, the cooking parent is really important. I mean, nobody would believe that our son, Adam, uh, loved kidneys. <laughs> but, you know, his father's right. English, steak and kidney pie, right? right? Yeah.
3: Exactly. Same thing with cat liver.
0: With what? Same they... thing
3: with uh, the roses' children
0: right and and then I was dying to know what the Ferguson children ate. <laughs> well, they have it, have it very have good.
3: That. they have pot pie and pineapple upside down cake
1: pineapple you upside down um, blood
3: orange, yeah, uh-huh. blood orange upside down cake, which looks so good. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, I got such a kick out of this. I mean, I think anybody who's ever had picky eater children will get the kick out of this, and probably some people that aren't. Um, I I loved Elena Arzak with the crabs. She made it a game, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think that hers is a little bit more involved than most other parents'. Um, But, again, she's a second-generation chef, so I think that both she and her, you know, she grew up in her dad's kitchen before taking it over, and I feel like she probably cooked at home quite like she cooked at Arzak. So that recipe is, there's a lot of steps, but it's also also really imaginative and delicious. And her other recipe is, I think it's an apple masquerading as an onion or something like that, where it looks like an onion. But it's actually an apple. I think it's brilliant.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm surprised that Will Goldfarb did um, a frittata. Did he do another one too? Because I mean, I just think of him. Yeah, as a both. Person. Yeah, all
3: chefs did. So all chefs did two. I think Will did a frittata and then also a pasta
0: with chickpeas. If I'm not mistaken. That's it. That's it. Yeah. 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 So, and I also I loved. Um, uh, J.P. McMahon 'cause because I mean I know those kids. <laughs> and, oh really? You know, I was well, he he takes them to all these conferences and we meet them. Yeah. Uh, they're very mature. I mean they're they're yes. just yeah. yeah. I mean he has them on stage doing things. I mean he's well, not it's not he's your got to train
3: typical, the next generation. The pardon? he has to train the next generation he can't be in the kitchen for the rest yeah. of his <laughs> life
0: so but yeah but um these aren't your typical parents are they i told you my belief is first of all i do believe that that kids are born with a sweet tooth <laughs> I, mean, I think so but um i think that the, it, given my background i also have um By the way, not a sweet tooth, but a a bitter tooth. I like bitter greens because that's what I was raised on. So there's this nature and nurture thing going on again, right?
3: I think one of the reasons that I wrote this book and worked with the chefs to bring the recipes to life is because when push comes to shove and you have young kids and you know they eat like two things and it's very easy in the moment if you are out of ideas or you just don't have time or the effort or the energy, not effort, you don't have time or the energy uh-huh. to revert back to what you know will work. But that's not always what's best for the family. It's not what's best for the kids. So I wanted to provide at least 100 recipes. And not every recipe is going to work for every kid or every family or at every right. age. But I try to have a range, so there's always an idea, if you need it, of what to make. And then, you know, I think the other thing that I really came out of this process with is, you know, we're so conditioned to look at recipes as something that can't be violated or uh, you have to go to the store for this one recipe or whatever. That's really not the case with these. Yeah, they're in grams, and they're precise, and they work, and we tested them to work in the certain way, but I also want the parents and any reader who isn't even a parent to look, get ideas, and then adapt how they want with whatever they have in the, in the kitchen. It's not yeah, well, invi- invulnerable, the recipe.
0: Now, Did you find out anything that unexpected with the response from the chefs? From the chefs? Well, yeah, I mean, the recipes you got back, the response you got when you asked for these these um, responses from the chef. No,
3: I mean, I think I was pleasantly surprised to know that I'm not alone in the struggle. And then even the world's greatest chefs, sometimes their kids just want to eat turkey and cheese sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> and that's, well, that's it. I butter think I, that and pasta was seems to be with, the
0: universal Butter and pasta. Yeah, or
3: butter and pasta. (laughs) Or whatever it is that, like, they also struggle. And the other thing that wasn't a surprise, but I think is quite important and touching for me at least, was that so many of these chefs opened up, uh, some kind of vulnerable, to be vulnerable to talk about the challenges of having young kids and missing out on a lot of their childhood because they're in the kitchen. You know, Never. I think that we That's always true. talk about um, how important it is to sit down at dinner with our kids. But if you think about it, a chef is always working at dinner. And especially in fine dining, dinner is the service. Yeah. So interestingly, what a lot of chefs do is they focus on breakfast. They know that they'll be there for breakfast, so they make the effort and get up early and have a really nice breakfast with their kids. Mm-hmm. So things like that, I think if unless you ask, no one's going to tell you that because I don't think it's very cool for parents to talk about, um, especially people who are parents publicly to talk about the challenges they face as a parent. But I didn't want to write a book that was so aspirational that it was alienated. I wanted a book yeah. that provided service and also let parents know that, yeah, this is the universal thing that a lot of, a lot of folks, um, have to work through
1: so you, you remember when we when we interviewed uh the fat duck chef yeah and, and, we, and we asked him what we asked him what he cooked for his family and he said roast chicken Roast chicken yeah yeah <laughs> this, this, this,
3: this, this, Yeah, we have two really good recipes of roast chicken in this book which um <laughs> there
0: you go, good, i think
3: good, is good. a crowd pleaser yeah
0: okay then so what are the chefs involved
3: from Roast Chicken it is um James Mapp okay. James Knappett and Sandia Chang from yeah, Bubble Dog in, in London. Yeah
0: and Sandra Noodle. and Philip
3: Faith from De Yonkman. Yeah.
0: And anything with noodles in is a winner. Yeah. Um you have these whimsical little drawings too. Tell us about that.
3: Well, I am also an illustrator. And, um, I thought I didn't want this. you know, Fyden makes quite serious cookbooks, which is great, but I didn't want this book to be like so serious without humor. Cause it is after all about kids and I wanted some playfulness and I wanted somewhere, somehow, uh, to communicate silly dad jokes. So <laughs> I drew them myself.
0: Yeah. Just I'm looking at your little lammy thing. It's <laughs> so cute. <laughs> And you have yeah. you have it going ba ba ba. <laughs> They're humorous and oh, the lamb. No,
3: it's going it's going ba ba ba, and then a hand is putting an O and turning it into a bow. Oh,
0: okay. I wondered what that <laughs> hand was doing because you have bow in there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know the chef. But my favorite a is um,
3: the, the penne penne al telefono from Margarita Forest, and it's one penne calling it his friend and saying, Penny for your thoughts. <laughs>
0: so
3: you have had
0: fun doing this book, huh?
3: I did, I did. I mean, it was great. I think one of the best things was um, searching the world for these chefs because, like I said, I didn't just rely solely on the pre-established metrics of who were the greatest chefs in the world because I think, as everyone knows, it's very... Um, Western, very male and very white. So exactly. I wanted to really open that up, and that meant you know doing some more digging and opening myself up to other um, other metrics. If you, if you always go by the same um, organizational principles, you'll always and and in, in perpetuity repeat the inequalities from before. So it was, I really wanted to change that conversation, not explicitly, but just in terms of. The curation.
0: Yeah, this. Um, I don't know how many people are going to run out and, and get um, kangaroo tail. <laughs> that we can
3: cute. use oxtail.
0: Yeah, that would work. Um, yeah, I guess we, when we first lived in Australia, a kangaroo in Victoria wasn't allowed because we were in outside of Melbourne. But then later, it's it was. Um, it was allowed. But the place where you live has a lot to do with with what you can. Your kids are mm-hmm. looking for. I liked your comments about lunch. By the way, I mean, it, it, so oh, many yeah. people we interview talk about how I mean, if they were immigrants, if the parents were immigrants, about how they were embarrassed in the lunchroom when they unpacked their lunch.
3: Yeah, it's called the lunchbox moment.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: actually i yeah. have a children's book coming out about that in i think a year so do you? Good. i've been thinking that's a good. lot about that yeah. it's
0: kind of universal i mean the, uh, the uh, i mean the reaction we've gotten from immigrants about how they were embarrassed with their lunch bucket. yeah I said, that's because you're doing that because that's a great idea to write the book yeah how hmm. do you get these ideas
3: Um, the the lunchbox moment, or this book in general, or what? In general, I mean, you
0: you you turn out so many books. How many books have you written? Fifteen. Or and edited? Does that include that the one you edited, uh, where chefs eat, or whatever Was
3: that Where you? chefs eat? Yeah. E- uh,
0: I don't think it does, or maybe yeah. it does.
3: I think sure. it, yeah. But a bunch of books, but a lot of them have been. Um, most of my other cookbooks have been in collaboration with other chefs, like uh-huh. Il Bucco with Donna Leonard and No Moi with Wilson Tang. Can can uh, you give me one second, please? Sorry. Sure. I tell you, I tell you, go back in the Sorry, uh, this is what it's like to have kids.
0: I know. <laughs> now, do you have custody of what? Sorry. Um, do you have them uh, full custody of children?
3: Oh no, I share I share custody with their mom.
0: Okay, so so does but, that change the equation at all in terms of your authority to cook for them? It
3: changes it um, logistically because I don't have them for every meal.
0: Uh huh.
3: Yeah. Um. So you know not so many breakfasts and dinners yes lunches sometimes uh-huh. um and it depends on their school schedule whether they're in school or not and camp and i mean
2: <laughs> there's i don't know so when you find five to write
0: that, yeah it's <laughs> amazing to share not this work so uh, we should oh, yeah. I was that.
3: say that so many of my other books have been in collaboration with other chefs. And this one is of course too. Um, so I try to, you know, I, I did Il Buco, No Moi, um, Notes from a Young Black Chef with Kwame Onwachi. Um, and then a whole bunch of children's books and, you know, like a book, of, just a bunch of books. Um, and those often are generated from the the author or the the author, the main person. And this was really the first book that I saw this. I saw this idea, and I saw a book that could really help parents. And so I kind of went after it that way.
0: I see. And
3: it kind of aligns with Fiden's approach, which they do a lot of these survey books because they have such good contacts around the world.
0: I see. Yeah. And you, another helpful thing is you have the chef's biographies in the back, in case people don't know who the chefs are. And it gives sort of an, an inkling of what they what background they're coming out of. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And if, and the other thing that I like is that on each page of the recipes, they have like the name of the chef, the name of the restaurant, where it is, yeah. the name of their yeah. kids. And, and
0: the ages of the kids.
3: Yeah, and the ages of the kids.
0: Well, yeah. some of them are, are quite older. I mean, but you say that it's, it's it's not just a limited time period frame with raising them. It's like forever parenting, which is true, I guess. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is
3: that um, all the kids are young. The oldest one, I think, is Margarita. Forrest has a older son. But most of them are either. I tried to do a nice range of like almost like babies all the way up to teenagers because it's such a different, um, different challenges for each age.
0: Yeah, I can't remember which one it was. Oh, it was, um, Sean Brock's one year old. I, I didn't realize he had a one year old.
3: Yeah, and I like it that, uh, um, he puts formula in the uh, in Yeah, in the I thought recipe. that was.
0: I'm I wasn't quite sure about that. Have you ever tasted formula?
3: <laughs> well, I think it's well incorporated into the other.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it has to. Be. My my pediatrician, God bless him, <laughs> when I was having trouble with the, the uh, formula stuff with Adam, because we didn't really do that very much. And he didn't like it. Our son didn't like this. For it. And the, the, the pediatrician told me to put salt in this. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, no, back to what we were saying about doctors and food, huh? Yeah. Well, much success with this current book, Joshua David Stein, Cooking for Your Kids. and um, And... and Put us, sign us up for, it, for this book that's coming out because I think that the lunchbox thing is a really great idea.
3: I will. I'll, I'll let you guys know. It takes a while because it needs to be illustrated. Yeah, I know, I'm not I doing know. the art, so different timeline. But thank you so much for the opportunity to discuss this book.
0: Well, I'm always happy when you have a new book coming out. So thank you again.
3: Thank you. Have-
0: so there you have it. Um, It's funny to say this about cookbooks, but both books are real page turners, and you're going to have a good time reading them. Uh, That's it for today. Next week, join us again, please. Same time, same place. Make a note, by the way, we're we're in the month
1: of August already. I know. It's hard hard to believe. Hard to believe there's so little of this year left. But nevertheless, we'll we'll be here. We hope you'll be here. And in the meantime... Bye-bye.